We must protect the position of the American dollar as a pillar of monetary stability around the world. I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserve assets, except in amounts and conditions determined to be in the interest of monetary stability and in the best interest of the United States. Let me lay to rest the bugaboo of what is called devaluation. Your dollar will be worth just as much tomorrow as it is today. The effect of this action, in other words, will be to stabilize the dollar. The United States has always been and will continue to be a forward-looking and trustworthy trading partner. Broadcasting from Brisbane, Australia, this is the FOMO Show. And this is a podcast where you'll hear about blockchain, cryptocurrency, emerging markets, and future tech in relatively plain English. We'll help you stay across what's going on so you don't get the fear of missing out. You can find us at FOMO.show or by searching for The FOMO Show on your platform of choice. Now, everything in the show is in the show notes. Uh, you can find links to the stuff we're talking about and timestamps to the relevant parts so you can always skip ahead or catch up later. So this episode, we're going to be interviewing T.M. Lee, who is the co-founder of CoinGecko, one of our favorite cryptocurrency aggregator sites. Mm, We're also exploring a bit of news from the last fortnight. And we'll also cover email forwarding sites and services in our privacy and security section. So that, that, that should all be interesting. So let's get into it. If you want to be a part of the show, why not record a voice message in Telegram or email it to us at fomoshow at protonmail.com. So what have you been up to the last couple of weeks, mate? So I set up some ads for the FOMO show, which are now showing within um, podcast listening apps. So yeah, that's pretty exciting. We've had, um, we've had oh, I think it's about 30,000 people view the ad thus far, which is pretty exciting. So yeah, we it's just cool to get it out there. Yeah, so if this is your first new episode listening to the show very big welcome to you hopefully you enjoy it if you do enjoy it please feel free to share it with your friends yeah yeah what have you been up to mate yeah so i am now a bona fide remote employee Mm. so i do not work for anyone in any office anymore so what are you doing so i am about 50 percent of my time i'm spending still as a lawyer but i'm working for a dispersed legal practice so I can work from home. I've got a membership at a co-working space. I can go in there uh, and I can go to people's businesses. And what kind of legal work do you do? Yeah, so most of my legal work is now focused on technology and business law. So right. basically startups, small, medium businesses. I do, do a little bit with the larger businesses, but basically your small to medium enterprise clients is where mm. I sit, mainly focused on the technology sector or companies that are touching the technology sector in some way. That's awesome. And what else have you been up to in the last couple of weeks? Yeah, so I have also been, I also went out to Tenterfield to talk about blockchain and smart contracts. Wow. Now, Tenterfield is a little town in northern New South Wales out in the country. Yeah. And uh, I was really surprised to get the invite out there, first of all. And it's somewhere I'm quite familiar with because I'm, I'm from somewhere not too far away from there. Right. And that's not too far away in country terms. So about right. an hour and a half away. Wow. which is practically down the road, <laughs> down the country. Um, 
But uh, it was great. I went out there and spoke at like their business breakfast out there and we had about 15 to 20 people show up, which is really good for a town of only about 3,000 people. Wow. Uh, whereas Brisbane's about 2 million and sometimes we don't get that amount of people to a meetup here. Wow. Um, it was awesome. And yeah. it was really green. That had a lot of rain. That We had it at their TAFE, which is like an educational institution out there. And it was right on the edge of town. So I was literally speaking and in my view from where I was speaking, looked out on this massive paddock and there was a mountain wow. in the distance. <laughs> and it was just, it was unreal. And they Crypto really looked- in the countryside. Oh, mate. And they really looked after me. And, and yeah, wow. so if, if anyone is listening from out in Tenerfield, um, thank you again for the hospitality. It was it was an amazing time. So, uh, yeah. And I was just amazed at the, the interest. Everyone wow. was really interested in blockchain and crypto and smart contracts and- um, yeah, really engaged with the content as well, which was great. I ended up spending a couple of hours presenting and answering questions and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, it was good, good fun. That's awesome. Bit of disclosure, this is not investment or any other type of advice, legal, tax, financial, um, business, any kind of advice. This isn't it. Yeah, we're not saying you should buy anything at all on this show. And look, full disclosure, we're both personally invested in dip different cryptocurrencies and other investments, uh, some of which we will talk about on this show. But if we talk about a project, it does not mean you should buy it. So do your research, never invest more than you can afford to lose and avoid the fear of missing out. If you're new around here and new to crypto, you can check out our Blockchain Basics series. It starts from episode two and continues until episode eight. It'll give you some grounding in the fundamentals and help you understand what on earth we're talking about. Let's dive into some of the news from the last fortnight. First up, coming out of um, the IEEE Spectrum magazine, um, it's a good time to be a blockchain developer. Yeah, so the online recruitment firm Glassdoor this month reported a 300% increase on its site in job openings seeking people with blockchain skills. And now most of the new jobs that Glassdoor reported are in uh, New York City, San Francisco, San, San Jose in the US, and then uh, London after that with 189 openings, Singapore with 85 openings. That's pretty impressive. Toronto with 82 openings, Hong Kong with 79 openings. So... Yeah, 421 openings in New York City, which is crazy. Yeah, it's unreal. And, and Upwork's quarter two 2018 skills index and for those that don't know upwork is like a gig economy mm. website and i've mm. used it before it's brilliant um but they listed blockchain as the fastest growing skill set in terms of demand and growing 3500 percent as we mentioned back in episode 25 yeah so i mean it's just more numbers coming out saying that this is a pretty big deal mm. yeah recent surveys are finding that yeah if you're in a blockchain developer um, you're actually looking at a, a salary that's much higher than the, the the average developer. So, you know, according to Janko Associates' 2019 IT salary survey, the median salary for a blockchain developer was 127,000 US dollars a year, with experienced blockchain engineers making 172,000 a year, and compared to 100 grand a year for you know, median salary for IT jobs overall. So, yeah. So if you're an IT Someone who works in IT and you're a programmer, you can go on Udemy, find a couple of blockchain courses. And, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so the next bit of news came as a bit of a surprise to me. I woke up this morning, had to double check the date. It wasn't April the 1st. The blockchain company Consensus has bought planetary, what is buying planetary resources, which is a, 
an asteroid mining company. Yeah, so Planetary Resources President and CEO Chris Lewicki and General Counsel Brian Israel have joined Consensus in connection with the acquisition. And uh, Joe Lubin, who's the founder of Consensus, has said, I admire Planetary Resources for its world-class talent, its record of innovation, and for inspiring people across our planet in support of its bold vision of the future. And it sounds like, I mean, I've I had some issues trying to actually work out what was going on here, like whether consensus was just hiring them and bringing them in mm-hmm, for their mm-hmm. development expertise and their outside the box thinking or whether consensus is generally whether consensus is genuinely buying a deep space mining startup now i was very confused as to what to think um i just thought it was a prank at first i had to google it to check and then i posted it to our famo telegram uh, Brendan, uh, Brendan Lee, who is in our Telegram chat, he wrote, I think it's weird. Consensus should be focused on scaling Ethereum because Consensus is a company that's, mm. they are organized around sort of a decentralized company organized around building Ethereum and making it better. And he goes, look, they should be focused on scaling Ethereum. The fact they even spend time on this is worrying for Ethereum investors at least, he said. Mm. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, is it a case of these guys just have too much money? And that then, is, yikes. and they're wanting to buy things up because, I mean, the, the issue for me is that I talk to businesses about Ethereum all the time. That they're, they're one of my biggest. They are my big example of how you can combine money and business logic and build smart contracts and things like that, and why it's such a big deal. But then the problem is when you start talking to them about it a bit more, you've always got to qualify it and be like, "Well, it's on Ethereum, and Ethereum's slow," or "Well, it's on Ethereum, and Solidity's a leaky ship." And it's not a great language to program money in because it's got a lot of vulnerabilities. And like those are problems that they're not new. You know, they've been around for a long time now. And there are so many developers building on this platform, building some really cool stuff. Like if you look at the number of awesome projects that are being built on Ethereum, it's it's mind boggling. But then to see the people that are kind of meant to be spending the time getting these scaling solutions to market and making this platform, you know, taking it from something that's slow, cumbersome to something that's actually enterprise grade. To see them going out and buying deep space mining companies, which aren't connected in any way, shape or form to Ethereum or blockchain. Some might call it mission drift. (laughs) I think it's definitely mission drift. But at the same time, devil's advocate here. Yeah. is it possible that, you know, Ethereum would actually have some really useful use cases out in space, you know, some sort of space coin where it's all sort of you've mined an asteroid and you're splitting up the value of what you've just mined from there using yeah. smart contracts? Or- yeah, I think definitely that the consensus algorithms especially, it means that you could have a, a number of different, let's just say ships, for example, out there or mining stations or whatever, and... You know, with a ledger like Ethereum or Bitcoin, they can, they don't need to be connected to each other all the time. They can come back together. Um, let's say, you know, this because the speed of light's obviously an issue. Um, they don't need to be in constant contact with each other. The ledger can come back and reconcile as long as everyone checks the transactions and uh, it all gets put into one large ledger at the end. So, yeah, I guess, I guess there may be use cases for that kind of stuff. But I mean, when we're not even out there doing it yet, 
look, it's it was probably just one person's idea, and mm. and they talked to them, had a beer with them, and they said, "Oh, we'd like to come in under consensus," and so they worked the details out, and now they're in. Like the actual human capital that was spent on this and time probably wasn't a lot mm. in the grand scheme yeah. of things. Yeah, nice bit of PR, you know. Yeah, give Ethereum investors some sort of. I mean, we're talking about Ethereum again, and we're talking about consensus again. So it must be working. Yeah. Good PR. Any publicity. (laughs) Next up, Alibaba's cloud's blockchain as a service is now available outside China. So coming out of CCN, the cloud computing division of China's largest online retailer, Alibaba, has announced the expansion um, of its blockchain as a service beyond China. So now it's going to be available in the US as well as countries in Europe and Southeast Asia. So, yeah. Yes, Alibaba's cloud blockchain as a service supports not just the Linux Foundation's Hyperledger fabric, but Ant Blockchain, which is developed by Ant Financial, a financial service affiliate of the giant online retail. So it seems like Alibaba is really making a move to follow Amazon, Samsung, all those guys who are following Microsoft and Hyperledger and IBM and all those guys. It's a bit of me tooism, I guess. But then at the same time, from what I've heard from people who've been in China, China's a lot further ahead in a lot of ways with blockchain stuff. So maybe these guys have been, you know, maybe there's a whole bunch of companies that are already on their system. Who knows? Visa's CEO says that crypto is not of interest yet. Um, speaking to CNBC's Jim Cramer, notorious pump and dump artist, uh, the Visa CEO Al Kelly said that the cryptocurrency wouldn't pose a threat to their company in the short to medium term uh, until it moves from being more of a commodity to actually really being a payment mm. instrument, which is pretty fair. I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Visa processes, what, 30,000 transactions a second and uh, Bitcoin processes 10. Yeah, that'll do. Yeah. So, I mean, he's he's basically, it's him being nice and saying, <laughs> when you guys take the training wheels off, then when we can When you want to come and join the big boys yeah. <laughs> at the big boys table. <laughs> yeah. But it does mesh with, I've, I've got a friend who went down to the big bankers conference in Sydney. So, all the all the bankers first went to the IMF conference. Uh, it was like the yearly, their yearly big conference, which was in Bali, funnily enough. Right. Just as I went in there, they were there as well in Denpasar. Um, and uh, from there, they all went to Sydney for this other big bankers conference and he went down there. It was funny him talking to all of the bankers. Most, A lot of them either didn't really know much about crypto at all or they did, but it, they didn't really have much time for it yet. And that seems to be the general consensus mm-hmm. that it's just... It's still child's play. Like it's 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 nowhere near. There were guys from J.P. Morgan there who manage, you know, twenty, thirty trillion dollar portfolios, investment portfolios for clients. You know, and the crypto market's a little bit over two hundred billion dollars in market cap. Mm. And their one portfolio Mm. was like twenty trillion dollars. You know, so. In that kind of perspective, it, it just it puts it, it puts it all into perspective. There is yeah. no point time, no point wasting time on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll come. I mean, it, it will come, but it's not there yet. So, next bit of news: Shios has announced the EOS Twenty One protocol, which lets you teleport your ERC Twenty tokens to EOS. So EOS 21 is an open source protocol and the first of its kind to enable seamless cross-chain token movement from Ethereum to the EOS blockchain. 
Now, the protocol was conceptualized by the Sense CEO and Shios co-founder, Crystal Rose, and it was constructed on the premise that developers should have the technical and creative freedom to move their tokens to any chain they want. So... According to this Bitcoin Africa um, post, it's saying this represents an important step towards blockchain interoperability and communication. Yeah, and I think what the EOS guys have identified is that the the EOS blockchain is able to run smart contracts. It's able to work at a significantly higher volume of transactions per second than the Ethereum network. And so they've essentially said, look, if you're building an Ethereum project and you want to bring it over to EOS. We we want to make it easier for you. And so that's what this token standard is essentially designed for. It's essentially designed so that you can bring your smart contract, which runs on the ERC standard, directly over to EOS, and it'll work just like it worked on Ethereum. It'll be like a chain swap, a one-to-one chain swap, Mm -hmm. Um, which is, I think it's a great move for them Mm. because it's just making things easier for people who are fed up waiting for Ethereum to scale and, you know, fed up with them buying deep space mining projects instead of working on going to proof of stake <laughs> to move to another blockchain. I think it's great. Wow. Um, I mean, any competition is good competition. I think I think this is a really good move. And mm. um, even the naming is kind of funny. EOS 21, it's like they have to one-up Ethereum, you know. Ah, <laughs> I didn't even realize that. Yeah. That's very clever. Yeah. That's very clever. Next piece of news I'm super excited about. So Russia, India and Iran are going to cooperate on a new trade route alternative to the Suez Canal. So there was a meeting between Iran, Russia and uh, India and they announced on the other week that they would meet next month to hammer out the details of this project. So it's going to open up a massive um, land to sea, um, or sea to land transport corridor that would basically save a lot of money. Yeah, so currently, if you were wanting to get from, say, England through to India, there's two ways you can do it. You can do it the old way, which is you know, all the way around Africa, down the bottom past South Africa, and up the other side, which is the way that they all used to do it. Uh, but then this canal called the Suez Canal was built, which kind of goes down the side of the Middle East, down through the Mediterranean Sea, the side of the Middle East, and out into the Arabian Sea. And you can go straight across to India. But it's a really small little area. Uh, I think, I'm pretty sure it's quite highly tariffed by the governments. Right, that, right, right. Because, it's, because they know that they've got everyone over a barrel mm. to go through because it mm. saves, oh, geez, at least a couple of weeks, if not a month off the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's still quite long. But if you look at the, the graph of this new route, it, it goes over land, essentially kind of what China is trying to do with their Silk Road. It's quite similar. Mm. It's, it's taking it over a land route instead of a sea route. Yeah. So what's going to happen is um, transport can uh, the transport time between Mumbai and Moscow will fall to just twenty days, uh, and the time and cost of shipping will be reduced by forty percent. So basically, you'd go and ship from India to Iran, and then you travel through Iran via train, and then um, across uh, to Baku and Azerbaijan. Um, Across to where is that Afghanistan? Who knows where that is? <laughs> and, and then up to I think that is Afghanistan. Wow, yeah, mm. yeah. So that goes through Afghanistan, which actually is going to give him a bunch more trade through there. Yeah, it doesn't have to tra- travel through Pakistan either uh, because there's yeah. all those tensions mm. going through Kashmir. But it's interesting seeing Russia coming out and doing these things in connection with India 
because I think both Russia and India are watching what China are doing mm. and with their Silk Road and they're, they're, they don't want to get left behind. And so it's interesting seeing them partner to build something like this. Diversifying, so they're not sort of entirely stuck with one or the other. Yeah. So that means they've got options. Yeah. Which is good. Options are good for everyone. And it's probably going to drive the value of, I mean, I'm I'm sure the people who administer the Suez Canal are going to have to look at this and say, well, we need to find a way to make this cheaper Mm. and more efficient as well. So, yeah, I think it's good. I Mm. think it's good for everyone. What's this about a Linux smartphone? Yeah, so everyone will be pretty familiar with my obsession with Linux. It's been growing and growing over time. But, uh, Which is an open source operating system? Yeah, it's an open source operating system. So it's an essentially a far better alternative to Windows and Mac. Oh. Just ask me. Treading on some toes there. <laughs> so, what's, yeah, so what's this all about? Yeah, so Pine64 is essentially, uh, they're working to create an inexpensive Linux-based smartphone and tablet. So everyone will know that at the moment, we've really only got two brands of smartphone. We've got an iPhone type of smartphone, or we've got uh, which runs on iOS, or we've got something that runs on Android. And that's basically our two options. Microsoft tried for a while, didn't work. And so people have been talking for a long time about the possibility of bringing out a Linux-powered smartphone. And you need to be aware that Android is already a Linux-powered smartphone yeah. anyway. They run, they run on Linux, the Linux kernel, and Android is built from that. But... Google have laid a whole bunch of other stuff on top of that mm. and companies have put even more stuff on top of that. And up until the last couple of years, having a phone based on a computer operating system wouldn't really work. And I think Microsoft were probably a little bit ahead of their time in trying to make that work. Mm. But now we've got this new thing called Electron, which if most people, most people probably won't know about it, but it's the reason that so many apps can now run on your laptops and your phones and you basically get the same experience on both because it's essentially like running a web page Hmm. or running a web app uh, in a container. Hmm. And so a lot of companies are now just building one thing. They're building a web application and they're just pushing it out to not only their websites but also all their apps on different Hmm. platforms. It kind of lets you have a unified experience. And so people have said, well, if that's the case – then we could feasibly build a Linux smartphone, which would be open source, free, inexpensive to, to run the operating system and everyone could contribute. And we could run most of the really popular apps just in these electron containers, wow. which is the way a lot of this stuff runs. Wow. So Pine64, so there's already one company that's come out and said they want to do that. And that's Purism, who are building like a privacy-focused Linux smartphone. But Pine64 have come out and said, we want to start building what they call a Pine phone. And the kit will include, and so they're going to send out developer kits this month to people. Wow. And the kit will include a baseboard, a seven-inch touchscreen display, camera, Wi-Fi, uh, a lithium-ion battery case, and a number of other things that you've come to expect. But the kicker is, they're aiming to have a smartphone that only costs around a hundred US dollars for about two gigabytes of RAM and about sixteen gig of storage. Which is incredibly competitive. Because mm, mm. they are known for like low cost laptops, so it's a pretty exciting move. Yeah, yeah. So if, if I think if they can if they can pull something like this off and look we gotta we gotta wait and see because Microsoft tried it and they didn't really succeed, but it could really open up the phone market and it could mm. mean we finally have a lot more choice again because it's like a trade-off, you know. Either you go with Apple and you trade off on usability, or you go with the Android Google systems. And you trade off on privacy. 
and it'd be nice to not have to trade off on either. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Yeah. So you ran across something recently, Joe, about using DNA for big data storage. Yeah, so this isn't a new idea by any stretch, and I believe they have a machine at um, – at MIT somewhere, which costs you know tens of thousands of dollars to write um, data into. I think they managed to write put like frames of a video and encode a video into DNA. Mm. Anyway, that's it's pretty expensive to you know print that up and run it. But yeah, this is a podcast that came out of Microsoft. Really interesting take on uh, just a bit of information on using DNA for data storage um and yeah it was with dr karen strauss um who is a senior researcher at microsoft redmond and just basically talking about why we should be storing we should consider storing data in dna we'll just play a little clip why are you interested in using dna for storage what's the premise behind it we're very excited about dna for at least three of its properties the first one is density. So instead of really storing the bits into devices that we have to manufacture, we are really looking at a molecule, storing data in a molecule itself. And so a molecule can be a lot smaller than the devices we're making. Just to give you an example, you could store the information uh, today stored in the data center, one exabyte of data, into a cubic inch of DNA. So that's quite tiny. Durability is the next interesting property of DNA. And so DNA, if preserved under the right conditions, can keep for a very long time, which is not necessarily possible with media that's commercial today. Right. I think the longest commercial media is rated for 30 years. That's tape, still tape. Wow. DNA, if encapsulated in the right conditions, has been shown to survive thousands of years. And so it's very interesting from a data preservation perspective as well. And then one other property is that now that we know how to read DNA and we'll always have the technology to read it, so now we'll have those readers. If we don't have those readers, we have a real problem. Uh, but <laughs> we'll have those readers uh, forever, as long as they're civilization. So it's not like floppy disks that are in the back of a drawer just gathering dust. We'll really have technology to read it. That last point is massive because yeah. standardization is one of the hardest things. Mm. We've got all these, everyone keeps talking about the fact that in 20 years, we won't be able to read a lot of the media that we've yeah. stored things on. So DNA does, it, it's such a good point because mm. it's a universal sort of language. Yeah. Isn't DNA really the OG blockchain though? <laughs> when you think about it. That's so, such a good point. Yeah. Yeah. It's not really immutable, but... No, and you can't alter it, can't you? You can corrupt DNA and you, yeah. can, you can change it. Because it's when the A, the G, the C and the T bond to the, the wrong one because yeah. instead of A, T, it's like... Yeah, and then yeah. So the next bit of news, this was a really interesting one. So this came out of uh, CCN.com and it was a news piece about an electric bike which is running on the Lightning Network with Bitcoin micropayments. Yeah, so Matthias Steinig, a German developer whose focus seems to be on developing the Lightning Network, uh, enabled technologies. Um, so that's one of the speed-up technologies that came that is there for Bitcoin, mm. uh, long story short. But yeah, um, he's created a rentable electric bicycle that allows users to pay for boosts um, where the electric motor kicks in and the cyclist can do less work for tiny amounts of Bitcoin. Mm, yeah, so the bike rental system has 
two components, both which operate on cheap Raspberry Pi hardware with stable code that's relatively easy because it's written in Python for commercial developers to tweak and potentially improve upon. And uh, the first is a server component, which authorizes the bike's battery to deliver the boost to the bike. Uh, and that's generally for like a prepaid length. And the second is a component attached to the bicycle, which has a wireless receiver and an LCD screen. So it's a really interesting proof of concept. And it is just a proof of concept. It's just a novel implementation. But I believe his goal with it was to show that with this new side channel technology using Lightning that it is possible to have a, a workable micropayment system that can interact with real-world pieces of equipment mm. technology. Yeah. So check out that article. It was a really interesting little article and just showed um, where the the Bitcoin network is at as far as being able to handle microtransactions that they may not have been able to handle six months ago or even 12 months ago. Next piece of news, uh, more in the electric transport um, area. Um, electric flying is becoming a reality, says the EasyJet CEO. Um, as EasyJet, which is a low-cost European airline, I plan to test a nine-seater, a nine-seater electric plane next year. So, yeah, electric propulsion has been slowly taking over in almost every sort of sector of transportation, but flight has been a bit of a tricky one to electrify. So... Um, last year, this electric plane startup, Wright Electric, stepped out of stealth mode, and a few months later, they announced a partnership with EasyJet. But um, now the EasyJet CEO has said that they've made progress, and he can now see an electric flight future. Mm. So they'll be yeah testing this nine-seater electric plane as soon as next year. Yeah, they want to electrify their short trip routes, uh, and they that, that'll be their first step in that direction. Um, but they're actually aiming for a battery-powered 150-seat plane to compete with 737-size aircrafts wow. for short-haul trips. Yeah. You know, so, so a lot of the domestic trips, for example. Mm. And f- you know, most flights, on, um, I think, no, not most flights, 30% of flights are under 300 miles in distance. So that's, that's a, yeah, it's it's a, big a big market. market. Yeah. But, yeah, whether they can actually do something there um yeah is, is another question i mean it'd be a really interesting one to watch because because jet fuel is expensive mm. it's it's really expensive it's a reason part of the reason flights are so expensive um but electricity doesn't really change cost you can't get like jet electricity mm. you've either got mm. electricity or you're not you don't mm. Mm. um so That's a good point yeah it'd be one to watch i mean i just bought an electric mower and an electric uh Whippersnipper. Wow. And like I'd only ever used petrol mowers before this, but this one, it just has a battery and you just, it's like a tool battery and you just plug it into the front of the mower and away it goes. Wow. You just use it like a normal mower and I was amazed at how good it was. A lot quieter. Um, I just used, yeah, electric battery, ran the mower and then I'd, I'd, I'd take it out the front of the mower, put it, plug it into the whippersnipper and then I'd, I'd use that to... The brush cutter to do all the the edges, oh, same yeah. battery, no need for fuel, just a battery. Wow! And it all worked. Sticking it to the man by doing your gardening—that's great. Well, it just it just shows that like electric powered stuff is really starting to get to the point where it's actually competitive mm. with petrol stuff. Mm. Same thing with dirt bikes. I, I, there's some dirt bikes that have been. Uh, running in some of the hardest enduros in the world. Wow. And they've been competing. The only problem they're having is the batteries. I mean, last piece of news um, coming from Austria, they're going to let drivers of electric cars go 
even faster than regular <laughs> drivers of petrol, gasoline, diesel or, or hybrid cars. So in certain conditions, they're saying, under a recently approved amendment to the country's speed limits, during emissions-restricted times, um, which are tied to high pollution levels, um, owners of EVs will be allowed to go at 81 miles an hour versus 62 miles an hour for um, you know in a particular speed region, which is 30% faster. Yeah, it's about 130 kilometres an hour versus 100 kilometres an hour which is significantly faster. Mm. And there is some concerns that this this may increase the chance of accidents. Mm. This might have a lot of unforeseen consequences, but it is a pretty good incentive. Mm. If you want to incentivize people to buy electric cars, I mean, the one thing that's going to make a lot of people that buy cars sit up and take notice is if you tell them you'll be able to go faster. <laughs> it's true. So in this next segment, we've got an interview with TM Lee from CoinGecko, and uh, we actually interviewed him earlier tonight. So we've been bouncing back and forth with emails for almost six months now, and it's been good to finally get some of his time. Absolutely lovely dude. So um, yeah, here's the interview. So today we've got TM Lee, who's the co-founder of CoinGecko, one of our favorite tools for researching cryptocurrencies. Um, CoinGecko gives you a bunch of awesome data with all the metrics you'd expect, but interestingly, with a bunch of unique features, including trading activity, developer activity, community activity, and an overall CoinGecko store. So it's really interesting. It's unique stats that you don't find anywhere else. So you can find them at CoinGecko.com. Welcome to the show, TM. Um, So good to have you on uh, on the phone. Thanks for having me. Uh, great pleasure to be uh, with you guys. Yeah, so first of all, TM, um, could you tell us a little bit about your background? So, so what's your story? What led you up to this place and, and how did you get into crypto in the beginning? So I think the first time I heard about Bitcoin was sometime in 2011, 2012. Uh, I was still in college at the time, uh, still doing my undergraduate in uh, computer science. Uh, I had come across Bitcoin a couple of times on the internet, but uh, at the time, I never really get the whole point of it. I just quickly dismiss it. Um, after I graduated, I think uh, sometime 2013 or so, uh, I was working as a software developer. Somehow, something got me really interested in learning about uh, monetary history. Uh, from there, I started to learn about the history of money, uh, which also got me to understand more about economics and finance. Uh, of course, while researching those topics, the word Bitcoin pop up again. Um, this time, it's, it's being called uh, so-called digital gold, or it's a technology that will change money. Um, so I thought to myself, okay, uh, what is this about? Um, I'm quite convinced because uh, lots of smart people are also discussing about the viability of Bitcoin. So... I decided to spend some time understanding about Bitcoin a little bit more by um, skimming through the white paper, uh, watching a bunch of YouTube videos, basically any materials that I can get my hands on uh, uh, in order to feed my uh, curiosity, right? Um, then uh, I finally get it, right? I, I then understood um, uh, why Bitcoin uh, 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 came to be and why people start to believe in it. Um, so, yeah, no, knowing isn't enough. Uh, I have to experience it. So I thought the best way to experience Bitcoin is to try to own some of it. Um, and since Bitcoin was a new thing to me, 
I don't even dare to buy any of them, right? So I, I try to figure out how I can obtain them for free. <laughs> uh, so I, I got my first couple of Bitcoin uh, through faucets. Uh, faucets are basically this tool where uh, you solve some captures, you do a little mini test, you get rewarded with very small amount of, of Bitcoin. So got very little of, of those and I started experimenting a little bit, uh, making some transactions, uh, trading it with other cryptocurrencies, trying out different services. And after spending some time, uh, I thought that, you know, Bitcoin is, is a really, really, uh, it's a simple thing, but it, it cuts into many, many aspects, right? Technology, finance, legal, mm-hmm. and so on. So I thought that this will one day in a few years become an industry of its own, and which looks like the case today. Um, so yeah, being software developer myself, I, I have the desire to build things, and I thought like, okay, why not I explore building application and tools within this space, and mm. that's how it is. So you co-founded um, CoinGecko with Bobby Ong. So how did you guys meet, and, and how, did you, how did you come up with the idea? So funny, the way we meet uh, is, is by quite an accidental thing. Like uh, I was working in, in a, a startup company in Singapore, mm-hmm. and Bobby, who is currently uh, my partner, um, he was uh, visiting uh, my CTO. Uh, they happened to be friends. And I was really, really excited about crypto at that time. And uh, so there was an introduction being made and I told Bobby, you know, when I come back to Malaysia, let's try to do something together. So that was, I think, early like 2014. Uh, both of us were pretty much involved in uh, crypto as a hobby. So basically we were just doing some trading, uh, trying to learn more about the space. Um, so at the time, uh, there weren't that many cryptocurrency websites. Uh, uh, while we were doing our, our you know, trading and stuff like that, we were looking at market capitalization a lot. And we noticed that market capitalization alone may not be the only way to evaluate cryptocurrencies. So uh, what happens is that we start to notice some coins or some cryptocurrencies uh, have uh, a larger community. It, it attracts a different type of community. Uh, some of them have different uh, features. Some of them have uh, a stronger or more active developer activity. So what we end up doing is we scroll through places like uh, Reddit, Forum, GitHub, trying to get all this information and understand these projects better. Uh, as we were doing that, we realized, hey, you know, maybe other people are doing similar things like this as well. So why not we create a tool and, and see how that goes? So that was when uh, Bobby and I, uh, we decided that we will create a website that would quantitatively measure uh, cryptocurrencies based on data from all these different sources. Uh, comprising of community developer and market in general. Wow. Okay, and that's that's quite a big undertaking too, isn't it? So, um, were there a lot of challenges when you when you first began trying to to build this site that was essentially pulling in a lot of data from many many different uh, APIs and and different coins and different information from different exchanges? What were some of the big hurdles that you you faced trying to build this this platform, which is now CoinGecko? Right. So uh, in the early days, uh, when we were starting out, I think things weren't too bad. Uh, if I recall correctly, we started off with probably like, what, 10 to 20 coins. Um, everything seems manageable. Uh, and the crypto market was relatively small. Uh, to us, it feels more like a fun hobby project. Mm. Uh, we, we both actually continue to keep our day jobs while bootstrapping CoinGecko on the side. 
Um, of course, you fast forward today, the market has moved on so quickly <laughs> that we suddenly see ourselves adding uh, new coins every day and we uh, have new data points based on user requests and suddenly we have like what, over 3,000 coins track on CoinGecko. Yeah, that's, that's pretty crazy. Um, so we, we had a lot of scalability issue, especially during the mid-2017 to early 2018 uh, during this crypto mania. There were just uh, tokens after tokens, coins after coins uh, added to the market and we're just having trouble trying to keep up. Uh, traffic has increased as well due to interest and uh, because our website was, was a hobby project, it couldn't handle uh, the load. So we're just spending a lot of time trying to keep the server up uh, and, you know, uh, survive through uh, the, the entire uh, bull run at the time. Um, <laughs> Of course, uh, fast forward today, you know, things are much better now. Yeah. Uh, we started to hire a team of people. Uh, we have a team of engineers working on scaling the site, uh, building features, uh, fixing bugs. So we use a lot of Amazon Web Services, Cloudflare, uh, in order to scale our website uh, based on the demand. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's an ever-growing problem that would just continue to get bigger. How many different sort of elements of hosting do you have to have? I mean, like, it, it can't be cheap to host a website that big. Um, it's, it's decent. Depends on, so we have some instances to surf the website. We have some instances to surf the API and some instances doing the work. So it, and we are able to use uh, some auto-scaling as well, mm-hmm. depending on demand. So that's why cloud services kind of work well for us. Uh, yeah. So like, like now, the the, the the traffic is relatively lower. The load is lower as well. So we could scale down a little bit. Uh, but I would say we are also doing a bit of smart things under the hood to try to keep everything manageable. Uh, and another question of the, of that, how many people do you have on the team now? Because, I mean, you've, you've grown so much over the, last, over the last year. So currently we have about nine people uh, uh, working in Kuala Lumpur, uh, which is where uh, the core team are. Uh, and uh, we do have uh, a decentralized team as well, uh, where we got people from the US, Singapore, Hong Kong, who are uh, working with us as well. So it, it's more of a good mix between a decentralized team and a core team uh, based in KL here to get things done. Yeah. Um, so, so the reason why we need to also grow uh, the team is also like aside from technical challenges, uh, I would also like to highlight more on the operation challenges that we face. Uh, from our perspective. So every day we get like requests for new cryptocurrencies or new exchanges coming to the market. And all these exchanges all have different structure and standards. So as a data aggregator, you know, it's our job to try to consolidate this information. Mm-hmm. Uh, so an example would be like a, a, a coin symbol uh, can mean something different between two exchanges. Um, right. So we have to do our best job to ensure that they are correct. Uh, sometimes the data being reported by exchange could be erroneous or strange, and we have to try to also like uh, figure that out. Uh, support tickets come in every day. So all in all, you know, we, we need uh, a strong operation team to resolve uh, all these issues and minimize uh, some of these bottlenecks. That's insane. That's absolutely like that's such a big task. I mean, especially because there's because you're getting the 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 trading volume sort of stats from all these different exchanges. And I mean, I've seen over the last year, and I'm, you've emailed us about a couple of them. But you've been you know building new features and adding new things in because originally we were just like looking at the site, but then you've added in uh, embeddable tickers where you can embed. Um, 
widgets on your your own website with uh, you know with you know Bitcoin um, charts, or you've also got um, your own app that's come out. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so uh, the app was launched maybe three to four months ago. It was something that we thought we needed to do, basically to because uh, there were a lot of requests for the past. I think two, three years of operating that, you know, do you have an app? Do you have an app? So we thought like, okay, let's, let's give it a go. Let's start with an MVP with the most minimal feature anyone will need and see how that goes. And so far the feedback has been pretty good. Like people like it and we want to continue to understand what user want from the app and extend on that. Um, so if, if you come to our site, you'll get the full feature of CoinGecko, but on the app is, is pretty much, uh, a stripped down version where you only get like the important parts of it. So that's how we are positioning uh, those two um, uh, apps. Um, but, you know, uh, recently we also launched a, a new feature called uh, CoinGecko Beam uh, that I'm really excited about uh, because pretty much we want to push towards transparency and democratization of information. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically it's a channel for project teams to uh, uh, directly connect with the uh, community uh, by making like status updates or announcement. And, and these updates would then be disseminated through our platform, our channel, and also through other developers who would like to integrate with this via our own uh, API. Right. Okay. So that's giving some more exposure to maybe some of these projects that, because it, it's, it's a hard problem at the moment. I know I talk to a lot of people and they say, it's very hard as a new project in the crypto space to get your name out there because you can't advertise on Google, you can't advertise on Facebook, uh, a lot of the time you can't even advertise on LinkedIn. So is that then a method for some of these projects to, to get exposure to your audience and, and for, for also your audience then to discover what, what new projects are coming out? Well, exposure is one. Uh, I think more importantly, our focus would be to uh, ensure that token holders uh, or anyone who's interested in this project mm. gets the uh, updates directly from the team. Mm. Uh, as you know, like there's so many like rehash of news all over the place coming from many different places. Mm. And what we really want to try to solve here is to get all this uh, first-hand information and first-hand news from the project teams directly to the users. Uh, in, in that case, you know, we are actually introducing more transparency. Uh, so, for example, like say if a token moves uh, from, uh, from their holding to somewhere else, uh, you want to have that announcement being made so that your holders know about them. So more on that portion uh, rather than the exposure side. The exposure is, is definitely uh, an added uh, advantage or bonus on top of this as well. That's awesome. So how do um, the, the projects, how does their news get into CoinGecko Beam? Do they need to sign up with you or does CoinGecko Beam sort of pull news from their feeds? How, how does that work? Yeah, so basically what we do is uh, we reach out to the project team mm-hmm. and then we do uh, some sort of a verification uh, to ensure that uh, the people who are representing are from the team itself so we'll go through a bit of a sort of like a KYC and things like that mm-hmm. to get these guys on board and they would then post the messages directly on our platform, which would then get decimated out there. 
Now, you guys have been running a, a fantastic newsletter for, for quite a while now. Um, now, if anyone's listening to this, we absolutely recommend subscribing to it. It's, it comes out every few days, you know, useful bits of news to know about, um, and it gets you know, straight to the top of your inbox. It's really worth subscribing to. Um, check out the show notes for the link. Um, the, just the other day, you released your Q3 report, um, which is the, the CoinGecko quarterly market report. Now, this latest one was huge. It was 46 pages, you know, packed with stats, a um, load of cool information in there. So if you're listening and you like exploring the stats, do dive into the, uh, the presentation, have a look at it, really worth um, lo- looking at. But um, yeah, you guys have done an amazing job on this TM. And, and yeah, thanks for putting it out because it's so much work has to go into this sort of thing. And I mean, it looks really slick as well. But what are some of the highlights that stood out to you? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yes, the team uh, deserve the credit in terms of uh, spending a lot of time uh, curating and packing uh, this enormous set of data into something uh, digestible as a report. Mm. Uh, I would say that the objective of the report is to get everyone up to speed with the industry mm. as there are just so many things that have been happening. Uh, so whether you are a follower of the market or just sitting on the sidelines, uh, the report should contain some key takeaway that everybody can get out of it. Um, so if you look at the report, every page of the report has its purpose and you would definitely get something out of them. Uh, the two sections that stood out for me personally uh, would be number one, the exchange section. Uh, I think here you can see the graphic that it really breaks down the, the market share between exchanges and also highlights the impact of uh, transaction fee mining, which is this thing that's being done by a lot of these exchanges. Mm. Uh, yeah, and, and also like down the road, I do see, I do hope to see like more decentralized exchanges uh, coming to the mix within the breakdown of the market share because uh, that's quite important. Uh, in terms of the second one, yeah, the second one is the major events. So this is truly the best section uh, for anyone who have not been following the news at all. Like if you are just sitting on the sidelines uh, in this one to two pages, you could quickly get a complete overview of all the headlines in the last quarter. Um, if you want to read through them, you could click those links, but just those two pages itself, you get to understand what has been happening in the last quarter. So that's definitely something I would watch out for. Uh, yeah, and then the market dynamics side of things, uh, the, the one important stat is the Bitcoin dominance, you know, is increased uh, back to over 50%. So, yeah, it indicates the importance of Bitcoin in the current uh, bear market. Mm, brilliant. And you've got some um, really interesting data in there, TM on masternodes as well as non-fungible tokens like CryptoKitties and Ethereum on and all that kind of stuff. Were there any projects that really stood out to you out of those emergent sectors, the, the, the newer areas of crypto that we're seeing rise up? Yeah, so at, at the moment, I am personally just uh, dabbling and playing around with a few uh, these non-fungible projects uh, just for fun, uh, just to understand the space a little bit. Mm. Um, I'm particularly interested in non-fungible token uh, applications for digital assets. Mm. Um, to name one example, uh, projects like maybe Gods Unchained um, sounds quite interesting to me. Uh, I'm not sure if you have you've seen them, uh, it's basically a Magic the Gathering uh, equivalent uh, on the blockchain. Wow. So um, it, it, it seems to make sense, but uh, like, because there's this scarcity of cards, you could play them uh, online. 
uh, but I'm not too sure if anyone would like to play, you know, Magic Gathering card game on a blockchain, but it's definitely uh, a good application or a good use case for uh, non-fungible. I'm a little wary about non-fungible projects that touches the real world. Mm. Uh, for example, like tokenization of real world assets, uh, but that's just personal. Like, like it might just be me uh, not knowing how to uh, handle all the complication and intricacies uh, behind this. Like, for example, what happens if um, uh, if the real world assets move or exchange hand? Uh, does the token holder still is still entitled for the uh, asset? Uh, and let's say if uh, the real world assets needs to be stored in a vault, like who will have to bear the cost for those? So uh, there is definitely a higher barrier of entry uh, and also requires more involvement from different parties to mm. execute uh, this sort of use case. But I'm sure there are some smart people who are trying to work this out because theoretically it, it, it's a sensible use case for non-fungible. What are some of the uh, some of the areas in the market that you've been excited to watch and see? Because you've been paying attention for a very long time, and I mean these reports are so fascinating. I mean, there's so much really cool data. I mean, every single slide in this presentation is worth tweeting in itself. But um, what, what sort of areas have you been really excited to follow uh, and watch as they progress? Yeah, um, I think one area that I'm really excited about would be decentralized exchanges. Uh, or DEXs. Um, so if you ask me like sometime last year, I would say DEXs uh, is far from getting any adoption. Uh, but if you fast forward today, I think uh, that that time may, may come really, really soon uh, because DEXs will play a significant role uh, in time to come. Uh, this just shows like how fast the DEX space uh, has advanced. So there is two parts in terms of the adoption of DEXs, right? There is the operator and the user side. Uh, for the operator, you know, we start to see a lot of uh, centralized exchange uh, launching their own like DEXs to accompany the service. Uh, and all these DEXs are just getting more and more user-friendly. And they also, some of them have a hybrid model where uh, the order book is, is centralized in a way, uh, where you get higher throughput, uh, but the custody of funds is decentralized. So, uh, you see more and more large centralized exchanges uh, getting into this space and uh, this space getting more and more competitive, which would then uh, mean that there will be better services being offered to the users and traders. Mm. Um, as, as for users, um, over time, uh, users would just get more and more savvy. They would demand uh, more methods of trading. Uh, they will want to have complete control of their funds. Uh, yeah, there will be a good portion of users uh, trading on this central exchange today, but uh, in, when they start to move to the next level, they would then want to trade on all these DEXs. So, uh, of course, right now, DEXs uh, is not perfect uh, because both of them, both DEXs and both centralized exchange will have, will serve different purposes. So, for a while, they will probably both coexist and serve different uh, market niche. Are there any other areas of the market that, um, that stick out for you? Um, I think the... The two uh, bigger topic that I think a lot of people are interested in, uh, but for me, I'm just watching right now, would be securities tokens and stable coins. Uh, I think given uh, you know the the, the current uh, um, uh, current event where a lot of regulators are looking to regulate um, token issuance, uh, and also with the recent um, news with uh, USDT and and the introduction of new stable coins. 
I think this is something definitely uh, uh, a space to to watch. Uh, and yeah, maybe in the future report, we might want to cover this topic as well. Yeah, if we can. How yeah. easy is it to buy stuff in uh, Kuala Lumpur with with crypto? Um, I think so. A couple of years ago, uh, there were quite a number of merchants accepting crypto. Uh, this was before the the bull run. Um, uh, mainly, they were using it as a marketing scheme, and they were like uh, a small interest group, like you know, wanting to just spend their crypto. Mm. But I think the traction wasn't wasn't that good. Like a lot of people are not willing to part with their crypto; like they want to just hold them. Um, so yeah, I think I think these days you you don't normally see them uh, anymore, uh, and also that there's not that many like local fiat exchanges. Uh, mainly due to banking issues as well. Mm. So all these uh, merchants, they're not willing to, uh, well, if, it, if they just accept crypto just for fun, it's okay, but they they won't find any place to liquidate their crypto into like fiat currencies. Yeah. I, I think that was one of the main issues. Yeah. Does that attitude extend to the government over there as well? Like what's, what's the government's view on crypto in Malaysia? Uh, so I, if I were to take an example of Singapore, the government kind of encourages uh, adoption of crypto, but yeah. the banks are not willing to take the risk, uh, as far as I recall. Uh, and I think that's the same is true for, for Malaysia as well. Um, so, but but I, I do see a few uh, like frameworks and stuff like that being written to regulate uh, crypto and also uh, ICOs. Yep. So we should see something uh, coming in place maybe next year uh, okay. when this framework actually get executed. But at the moment, uh, uh, it's not really uh, something that is out there. Yeah. Are there a lot of projects popping up over there, like crypto and blockchain projects in Malaysia? Uh, so the, two years ago, there were a lot of like startup companies using ICOs to uh, raise money. Uh, so they incorporate blockchain into their existing product. Uh, but a few, say, crypto projects that you probably would want to uh, probably have heard of. Uh, one of them is, uh, you know, Etherscan. Etherscan is, is actually based off in Malaysia as well. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. And then you got, uh, well, this is uh, NAM, uh, NAM blockchain. They, I think the founder, one of the founders was Malaysian. Yep. Um, so they have a NAM blockchain center. Uh, in, in Malaysia and they're doing a lot of groundwork as well. Uh, then other than that, I would say they are mainly like ICO projects uh, here and there. It's a pretty good uh, special interest group also like trying to teach people the space and yeah, it's it's a growing uh, small community, I would say. Awesome. Right, so you've, you've um, pivoting from that a little bit then, you're developing the quarterly report every quarter, um, which like Joe said, we'd recommend everyone go sign up for. Uh, you've also done beam you've got the app what's next for coin gecko are there any other projects in the pipeline that you're able to talk about and i guess just at a more macro level as well where are you moving towards in this space where, where do you see coin gecko factoring in in 2019 yeah i think for the past few months we have been uh really on a high speed mode churning out a lot of uh different uh services in different platforms mm. Uh, I think I would say that we will be spending a lot of time uh, solidifying all these things that we have already built, mm -hmm. making them stable, making them scalable, and trying to make them the best uh, in terms of what they do. Uh, and at the end of the day, we want to provide the most uh, accurate and the best information across all aspects 
of cryptocurrencies. So you will probably see us uh, expanding further on all of the existing uh, services, the website, Beam, the app, API. Um, aside from that, uh, we want to consider some experimentation. Uh, I can't disclose any of them yet at the moment, but we really want okay. to try something that is really off the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the site has come on so far. Like, uh, like I mean, uh, the last few times I've... There's been a major design iteration in the last couple of months at least because it used to show all of the scores sort of on, on what um, you'd see developer activity, community activity, uh, and then your overall score. But now you've gone into like a load more detail on this. It's really, really interesting to see it grow. Um, yeah, it looks awesome, man. So where where can we follow you and keep up to date with what CoinGecko is doing? The best place to keep up to date with CoinGecko is, uh, of course, uh, following us on, on Twitter uh, at, at CoinGecko uh, or drop us an email if you have any questions at uh, hello at CoinGecko.com. Uh, otherwise, you know, feel free to subscribe our newsletter and you would definitely be in the know uh, about all the new stuff that are coming from us and also the crypto industry in, in, in general. Uh, we have uh, some some guys who uh, who would you know summarize uh, some of the most important news that you need to know every day, and it all goes straight into your inbox. Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you so much for your time, TM. Like, really appreciate. It. Absolutely love the website as well, and we'll be we're, we're subscribed to the newsletter, and we love seeing those reports. But yeah, thanks so much for building it, man. I mean, it, it can't have been a small project, and it's it's so good to see it. So thanks for taking the time to to chat to us as well. Appreciate the the good positive feedback. Yeah, and always looking forward to any suggestions you have so that we can improve the the website. Yeah, awesome. Right. Take it easy. Cool. See you thank later, you. mate. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. He's a really good guy. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah, no, it was good fun. So yeah, we'll um, we'll put the link to CoinGecko in the show notes. Definitely go and check it out. We've said many times it's it's one of our favorite favorite crypto metric sites. Their newsletter is, especially their quarterly report, is unreal. Mm. Like it's really really good. So yeah, worth signing up for the newsletter just for that. Definitely. In our privacy and security section, we're talking about email forwarders. Now, one of the most annoying things that you may encounter in your daily life is spam email. Yeah, so even on legitimate sites, you share your email and they might forward it on or do affiliate marketing. Um, and it also means that when you're signing up with, let's say, your normal email, you're giving giving your email over every single time to a whole bunch of different companies. And uh, email forwarders essentially give you a gap between your real email address and all these different sites that you sign up for. Um, and that can also mean that you can use a different email for each site, which means that if it's compromised and say they get your password, which does happen, websites get breached, people get passwords, that means they won't have everything. Uh, mm. So it's a really easy way to kind of create a little bit more privacy and security for yourself without really giving anything up. So which tool do you use? Yeah, so the one I can personally recommend is 33Mail. And 33Mail is an unlimited free disposable email address service. And we'll put the link in the show notes, but I've been using this for over a year. And what you do is you essentially create a new email address whenever you need one. So let's say I wanted to sign up for Facebook. I'll just create one that says, and let's say my domain name I've set up with 33mail is matt 
matt.33mail.com. When I go to the Facebook sign-up page, I'd, I'd sign up as facebook at matt.33mail.com. And then if I went to Instagram, I could sign up as instagram at matt.33mail.com. And both of those email addresses will be automatically created. So I don't need to go into 33mail and create a separate email for both. As long as I put something before the at, that will be created. And then all that email gets sent to whatever email I elect for all Mm. to be sent to. But the beauty of it is, is that I can see what's coming from Facebook because it's at at that Mm. Facebook at Matt address. I can see it's coming from Instagram at that address. And you're therefore seeing who they're sharing your email address with. Exactly. So if someone if someone if let's say I sign up for Facebook and then all of a sudden I'm getting emails from LinkedIn, I know that Facebook and that's coming to my Facebook address. I know that Facebook have shared my details with LinkedIn. Mm. And uh, it's really interesting to see who respects your privacy and who doesn't, who shares your info. And the beauty of 33 mail too is you can turn them off as well. If you're getting a whole bunch of spam from one, you don't need it anymore, you can turn it off. So you're essentially just creating a, a way that no one really has your real email address, but it's all coming to your real email address. Mm. So the one caveat to that is I wouldn't advise using it for anything important um, as you don't know how long a service like this is going to be around for because it is free. You don't pay anything for it. You can get the premium service. But one of the ones I'll mention later uh, has actually shut down and it was a competitor right. to 33 mail. So just be a little bit careful when you're using these things. Now, if you just need a temporary throwaway one that can just last for a few seconds, I'd recommend Gorilla Mail. Um, I use this whenever someone's like, oh, enter your details to download this ebook. And I'll be like, yeah, all right. And then just give them uh, a Gorilla Mail email address. So, so they're disposable temporary email addresses. Mm. So there are some other emails, uh, other services that are similar to 33Mail. Um, one's called Blur. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so Blur is a masked email service and it's got a Chrome plugin which essentially allows you to choose when you're entering, having to enter an email into a site, whether you want to enter a real email or what they call a masked email. And it's different to 33Mail because it's all at the same domain. So it's usually just like a random set of numbers at blur.com or something like that. Um, And the beauty of Blur is they've also got a credit card masking service and a password management service. So the credit card masking service, essentially what it does is it means that you don't need to give over your real credit card. You can give over like one of the Blur credit cards. So because the big issue with credit cards, of course, is if someone has your details, they can generally just bill that card. Mm. And so if you're in, like I was, a country where you can't actually trust all the ATMs, there's quite a risk of someone swiping your details and beginning to bill that card without your knowledge. So Blur allows you just to use a essentially a masked credit card. And they do, they've got like a phone masking service too. But both of those, the credit card and the phone masking service, they're paid. And as far as I know, they're only available in the US. I did try and sign up for it earlier because I know some people use it in the States. And I think those premium services were only for the US residents currently. So what other sort of tools are there to increase privacy further? Yeah, so I mean, look, you could pair both of those. You could you could have a uh, 33 mail service and then you could run a Blur service as well. And you, so your 33 mail address you could give to Blur. And so then you could use Blur as like your day-to-day, get everything sent to your 33 mail, which then gets sent to your real email um, if you wanted some more privacy. So that's that's a nice kind of combination. There's There was a website that I was going to share because I had used it before and it's called notsharingmy.info. But I've since found that it's gone offline. So it's a little bit of a warning because it was basically another 33 mail 
and it got shut down. Um, mm. They just weren't making enough money or I'm not sure what really happened. So, the moral of the story is with those email forwarding services, don't store your essential information mm. with them. Mm. Now, you can use, you know, you could create an account with Gmail or Outlook or if you already have a Gmail account and you're not too worried about someone getting your original email, you can write your, you know, a random word like Facebook plus and then your email address, uh, matt at googlemail.com. So then it creates an account in a similar way. But yeah, just use something like 33Mail or Gorilla Mail. Don't yeah. feed the beast. And look, I think for your important emails, what you really want to start doing is using some kind of encrypted mail service. Um, we recommend ProtonMail just because we've used it. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes as always. But I've been using ProtonMail for well over a year. I use it for my personal email. I use it for my business email. Uh, it works really, really well with everything. It's zero knowledge, so it means that if someone else is using ProtonMail and you're sending them an email, the provider won't know what the email says and neither will anyone else, only you and the person on the other end, which is quite nice. Uh, and they're based in Switzerland as well, which has some of the best privacy laws in the world. Um, but there's also another one called FastMail. And I know a lot of people use FastMail and it's a privacy-focused one as well. It's not zero knowledge as far as I know, but the beauty of FastMail is that they've got like a calendar app. And I think they've got some other apps as well that integrate into everything. So you could feasibly get a lot of the, the benefits that you get from, say, having a Gmail account or an Outlook account with the calendar and the, all the, the task list and all that other kind of stuff. I'm pretty sure FastMail gives you all of that as well, which you don't get in ProtonMail. So, yeah, I'd, I'd recommend for your personal email to go with a service like that, something that cares about your privacy and is, and is a bit more encrypted. Cool. Now someone might enjoy this, please feel free to share this with them. You can find us at FOMO.show. You can jump on Telegram at FOMO.show slash Telegram. You can follow us on Twitter at the underscore FOMO underscore show. And Facebook at Facebook.com slash The FOMO Show. YouTube at FOMO.show slash YouTube. That's it for us here at The FOMO Show. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like our show, please do feel free to subscribe in your podcast app of choice or via our YouTube channel. I'm Matt. And as always, remember... with all the natural resources. Yeah, because what, if we mine an asteroid with gold on it, that could completely trash the price of gold on our planet. Yeah. Anyway. Switzerland. 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 Amazing place. We're the only thing... Yes, cheese. They do so much right in Switzerland. They really do. I mean, the more you think of it, yeah, cheese, watches, trains, all the trains are on time, they're all immaculate. 
snow. Our beautiful freaking landscapes. Seriously. Switzerland. Switzerland. A lot of extreme Secure email providers. I mean, we're talking about ProtonMail today, so. Mm. Like some of the best Bitcoin storage stuff is in Switzerland as well. Bunkers. They've got voting systems. I say their voting system's amazing. Um, Canton, the Canton system. Crime rates are terrible, though. Yeah. There's no adventure. <laughs> no one does anything wrong. <laughs> but they have a lot more local government stuff in Switzerland, too. Mm. Like, local government does really seem to actually have mean something. Wow. In Switzerland. So it's not just some sort of pointless racket. <laughs> Do you know there's a cafe in um, I've been like there's a, a, a warehouse I've been going to um, to have some meetings recently and they um, and they there's a cafe nearby mm-hmm. and they wanted to get a they wanted to be able to sell alcohol on their premises. They had to spend twenty five thousand dollars. This isn't even get the liquor license. This is just get the license the pre liquor license license. Cost them twenty five thousand dollars and took them a year. They had to get all sorts of inspectors to come out and inspect the property. There are all these different regulate, uh, regulations that they needed to adhere to. And they haven't even got the license yet. That was just, I think it was just to get their cafe license or something, which was the step before getting your liquor license. $25,000. 12 just months. Rackets left, right, and center. This is a country of bloody tennis supplies. <laughs> <laughs> That's just Excuse unreal. My language. Enough to make you go mad. 